Well, good morning, church. Do you have a copy of God's Word? I hope you do. If you want to open your Bible to Revelation, the very last book in the New Testament, last book in the Bible, and we have our series underway, our series seven. Seven, it's a series in Revelation. John, the apostle, he was exiled, kicked out. They tried to boil him in oil. He wouldn't die. What do you do with a man that doesn't die? You'd send him off to an isolated island to rot the rest of his days. But instead of God leaving John, the beloved disciple, instead of leaving him abandoned, he met with him in one of the most powerful ways that we see in Scripture God showed up and provided him with a vision, a word for the churches at the time, and clarity of how the story ends. Okay, we're only going to be covering the seven churches, so we're only looking at chapters two and three, but if you would open up to chapter two and verse eight, we're going to be looking at our second church. First one was the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was all head, no heart. They stood for the truth. They didn't compromise in the truth, but they were marked by an unloving nature that God warned them. If there is no love, your candlestick is going to be snuffed out. You were burning brightly, and when the love went out, your light goes out. Church number two, turn your neighbor and say, this is number two. Okay, this is number two. Second church, second letter. We have a church in a city about 40 miles north of Ephesus, and they had a a completely different letter, a completely different tone and attitude, the suffering church. And, And here's the title of the message, Dear Suffering Church. Since I'm the church, somebody say, I'm the church, I have to ask, am I suffering? Am I the suffering church right now? Am I going through this stuff? We think about persecution of the church. That's what the church in Smyrna was going through is persecution for standing for what's right. You realize that you don't get a gold star. You don't get any credit that if you're suffering because you're an idiot, you don't, you don't get credit for that. You don't get credit for disobedience and rebellion and you're suffering because you chose your way and you were stiff necked, hard hearted and arrogant. And you chose to go left instead of right in your suffering consequences. That's not suffering. Those are consequences for rebellion and for sin. We're talking about this church that was suffering because they were standing for the truth. They were willing to be persecuted. So I'm thinking to myself, if, if I am the church and if I'm the suffering church, if I am not living a faithful life, if I'm unwilling to be faithful and endure through the suffering, then I'm failing. If I'm failing to be faithful, even when it's hardest, even when I want to quit and run away and hide, I'm failing. And today could be a day that you'd say, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful. So have you been living a life that is marked by faithfulness? I don't know what your past weeks have been like. I don't know what your past months, maybe these past years, maybe since 2020 for some of us, you could ask the question, have I been faithful when, when the times got tough, when things got hard, when God was telling me to stand firm and not quit, not give up, did I remain faithful or have I strayed, wandered, made excuses? Have I actually withdrawn? Have I gone backwards or am I making progress? Am I faithful? Anybody agree with me that we live in a faithless culture? Like excited to start and unwilling to finish, excited to sign up to begin and never follow through. 
Well, I thought it was going to be different. I thought I was signing up for something that was a little bit more exciting. I thought it was going to be more fulfilling. I thought it was going to be easier than this. We are living in a culture of quitters and the church has to be different. We have to be different. We came from an old way, an old culture, an old generational path and pattern of quitting and quitting and quitting and excuse making. And it's got to be broken. And what if today's the day you'd say, I'm not going to make excuses anymore. I'm not going to quit when it gets hard. I am not going to blame somebody else. There's something to be said for God's people just keep showing up. We just keep showing up. When we are needed, we are there. We don't make excuses. We don't blame anybody else. We just keep showing up. What if we were a church that even though under great persecution, even though everything going wrong, we just continue to be faithful? What kind of church would we be? If we had 100% faithfulness, well, let's learn. Let's learn from this church. And last week, we, we talked about revival. And as you get low, if you're able to physically, you just want to be able to get on our knees. You want to be able to, if you want to just lay flat on your face, if you want to find a spot, because I'm praying over these weeks, that revival would begin and it would begin with, with me, that God would deal with me in whatever way. And guess what? God has has been pretty faithful to do his part of exposing the stuff that needs to go in my life. Would you join me in that? May revival begin and that each one of us could say, God, start with me. Start with me. Verse eight of chapter two. I want to introduce you to the church in Smyrna. Guess what? It's the only one of the seven that are still there today. There is a church in the modern day nation of Turkey. There are still believers here in this city. The persecuted church is not the church that fizzles out, the church that is persecuted. I love this reality. The persecution doesn't stop the church. It doesn't destroy the church. It makes it stronger. It makes it stronger. When the temperature is rising, remember that God is refining. God is bringing the heat because he wants a church that's going to endure and be faithful. May we be that church. So we're going to have a, a bigger celebration next month, but I, I want a little pre-party. We are within weeks of the original date, 110 years ago, that our church began, that we were a mission in a mission field 110 years ago this summer, and we are still burning, and God is not done yet, and there has been opposition, and at every effort of Satan wanting to close the doors, God is continually saying, I'm faithful. I am faithful, I am faithful, I am faithful. And he's calling his people, respond with faithfulness. Respond with digging your heels in and saying, another 110 years. And we are committed to doing the things that it takes. We are committed to following the way, no matter what it costs. And this church here, so powerful. He says this in verse 8. Everybody see it there? Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8 from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last. The words of the first and the last. Who in the world is the first and the last? Well, we know from Isaiah, this is so awesome. Isaiah would tell us in Isaiah 41, 4, who has performed and done this? Calling the generations, the generations from the very beginning. I, the Lord. Somebody say the Lord. It's the Lord. I, the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of angel armies, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there's no God. There's no God. Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, 
whom I have called. Isn't that awesome? God's people are called by his name. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. He's the beginning and he's the end. He's the alpha and he is the omega. He's the one speaking. And when God speaks, we listen up. God help us that we don't yawn, that we don't fall asleep, that we don't say, oh, yeah, but actually, we are not the correctors of the author of the universe. We are not the critics of the one who spoke galaxies into existence. We're the ones that submit and follow and get low before him. We shut our mouths and we open our ears and we say, God, speak. And here he's speaking to his church. And do you know what else we know about this God? We know from Hebrews 13, 8, this God came in flesh. His name is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Because Hebrews 13 tells us this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Who is the Alpha and the Omega? Who is the first and the last? Who is the beginning and the end? Jesus Christ is God. He is the one speaking to his church. And here he says to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, and we said last week that angel doesn't necessarily mean heavenly messenger. It just means a messenger. And here we would say it's an earthly messenger. It's probably the pastor or elders of the church that are receiving the letters, just like the other letters written in the New Testament were passed around by leadership and were clarified and proclaimed. What does he write? The words the very words of the first and the last. What does it say? Who died and who came to life? Who's the one that died? Who's the one that came to life? We celebrate even to this day, thousands of years later, there was one who lived, there was one who died, there was one who rose again. And we skipped over Revelation 1. Somebody say, uh-oh. All right, that was your homework, right? That's not on me, that's on you, okay? All right? So we challenged you last week, you gotta get caught up, right? Your homework. I know we don't, we don't say the H word, uh, as adults, right? That, that's for that's for kids. But homework, okay? Let's back up, and I'll give you a little review. Revelation one, starting in verse five. You want to flip the page? I know some of you are like, we're flipping all over the place. Just one page back. Just one page back. Okay. One in verse five, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler. Who is he? He's the ruler of kings on the earth. Who's the king of kings? Jesus Christ. And to him who loves us, he loves us, he's freed us from our sins by his blood, death, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Somebody say amen. There it is. Jump to verse eight. I am the uh, alpha, I am the omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the almighty, the mighty one. And what did I skip over? Verse seven, here it is. Behold, somebody say, check it out. Here, let's try that again. Behold, here we go. You got to pay attention. We got to lean in. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, those who slaughtered and killed him, they will see him. All the tribes of the earth will wait on account of him. Even so, amen. Can can we get an amen here? There we go. Amen, amen, and amen. So we read, it is, or we sang, it is well. We read, in part, why we sing a song about anticipation. We didn't sing the classical hymn. Somebody say that's a problem. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. We got all kinds of versions, all kinds of renditions. Next time we will sing, we'll sing the hymn. But here's, here's one of the, the last stanzas of the original hymn of It Is Well. Even though we don't sing it, we put it up on the screen. We can at least read it. We can see it. That, and the Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Haste the day. Quick, quick, God. I want my faith to be sight. 
The clouds are going to be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. It's going to blast. And the Lord, what is he going to do? He's going to descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. No matter what we're going through, no matter the suffering, no matter the disappointment and the hurts, that we can say, I know how the story ends. I know what's coming. And I am saying, God, come quickly. Maranatha, come quickly. I want to see you arrive so that there is no more pain. There's no more suffering. That what I am by faith living, I am now with my eyes seeing. Come, may it be so. And we see even in Revelation 1, he is coming. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he's coming. And what he's calling us to do in the meantime, in the meantime, while we wait on him, what have you been doing while you've been waiting? While you've been hearing the truth, while you've been hearing the call to follow Jesus and submit your life to the king, what have you been doing while you're waiting for his arrival? And this letter would call us, just like the church in Smyrna, be faithful no matter what. Be faithful no matter what. Do not quit. Do not give up. Do not get distracted. This is serious. He's coming soon. Is he going to find you doing what? Is your last words out of your mouth when the clouds open up and King Jesus descends, is the last words out of your mouth going to be cussing? The last words out of your mouth going to be complaining and criticizing and gossiping and slandering? Jesus is coming. Is he going to find you in bed with somebody that's not your spouse? Is he going to find you drunk? Is he going to find you cheating, stealing? Is he going to find you in a place that you are living just like the world when he has called you to be separate, to be holy, to be different? While you wait, are you faithful? Or is there going to be great tears on that day? Do we believe it that Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from every eye? Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do we believe that we've been told from Scripture that he is holding every tear in a bottle, he counts them, he knows them, he's with us, he's for us, he is compassionate, and yet with that compassion comes a serious sobriety about knowing on that day I'm going to give an account and what's going to happen. Am I going to be found faithful? He says, the words of the first and the last, he who died and he rose again, he came to life, can I say with full confidence that that day is coming and I will be faithful. I will be faithful until he arrives. And I love that I I can even look right now and I can see so many of us. They're like, I'm committed. I am all in. I am faithful. Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to slow me down. I'm not going to be distracted. And yet there's also many of us that I don't even have my big toe in the pool. I haven't even taken the first step of this marathon. I'm afraid. I'm afraid about what I, I'm going to give up, what God's going to ask of me. I love living the me life. I love living for myself. I love stuff. And I know that if I trusted this Jesus, the king of the universe, I would have to like give stuff up. And I'm not willing to do that. And could I just say, loved ones today, he's coming soon. There is not time. There is a sense of urgency of I need to get my house in order. I need to get my life in order. I need to get my mind in order. I need to get my finances in order. I need to get my relationships in order. Because the one that is the first and the last He's going to come back. He's the king. Some of us, even recently, have had some sobering moments of God shaking us awake and clarifying your life is brief. Your life is short. You don't know how much time you have left. And for those of us that are still thinking, I got plenty of time, maybe today would be the day to say, 
Time is running out. I don't know how much longer I have. One of my best friends from a number of church plants ago, we planted a church in Wisconsin. It was the first church plant that I was a, a co-pastor, a lead pastor of back in 2008. And our good friend, the Phillips family, my good friend, Chris, we would meet every single Sunday after church. We're over at the Phillips house. Every single Sunday, we're over there with all of his little kids running around talking about this new life in Jesus. He was a punk, skinhead, KKK, skater dude, drug addict, radically raptured out of that life and strategically placed into a Bible-preaching little country Baptist church in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, and he started getting discipled. And then him and I connected and we shared our stories and our backgrounds, and pretty soon our families were connected. And I began discipling him, and we started encouraging each other to start pouring our life into others. And pretty soon, he moved to Texas out of all places, and I recommended an awesome Bible-preaching church. He showed up there, and all of a sudden, they're training him for leadership, and he's leading small groups. And he knows where he came from, and he knows where he's headed, and he's not looking back. And so he lived in Georgetown. And we found out last week at the age of 49, Chris is dead. Heart attack, life support, few days, he's gone. The same friend that I was about to call to be able to connect with now that we're here for us to be able to get together to reconnect, who in their 40s just dies before it's time, before we think it's time. And you know what's so awesome, though? That every single one of his kids is able to say, my dad loved me. My dad was a total mess. He had a lot of rough edges. And dad still was out back occasionally smoking a cigar or drinking a beer and cussing once in a while. But he was changing every day and he didn't want to stay the same. And he was fighting his flesh and making war with the old life and moving forward, not wanting to look back. And then there's something that is incredibly sobering, not just hearing life is brief, not just knowing that at any moment Jesus can return, but then God allowing people that we love, people that are close to us, be taken. How are you going to respond to that? This is what Chris wants me to do. Chris doesn't want me to, to dwell in sorrow and grieve over that as if I have no hope. He wants me to get as many people into the kingdom as possible. He wants me to reach out to as many people that are marked as lost and too far gone, just like him and I both were, and keep making disciples. Because God has spoken. He has a word for us. And what does he say? to be faithful no matter what, that the day is coming and that he is the one who died for us. He's the one that came to life again. I have overcome death. I have overcome death. This is the truth. And if I've overcome death, then God's going to take care of everything else. I'm going to be more than a conqueror and a victor in everything else. If, if death can't hold me because I'm with him and he has overcome, he has conquered the grave, then there is hope for us to go through any kind of persecution, any kind of suffering. And here we go, verse 9, verse 9. You see it? Revelation 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation. Somebody say tribulation. Here we go. I, I know it, God says. Jesus is looking and saying, I know it. I see you, church. I see you, Christian. I see you, faithful follower. I see the tribulation that you're going through. What else does he see? He says, I know it. I know it intimately. I know you're poverty. Somebody say poverty. I know the struggles you have. I know what's being done to you, and I know what you're lacking. I know it. I see it. But what does it say? 
but you are rich. You are righteously rich. You are overwhelmingly rich. This is who you are, regardless of what you face, regardless of what you think you need, regardless of all of the wants. You are already filthy rich. But he says, I know it. I see it. I see the tribulation. I see the poverty and the slander and the slander. What did we say that slander was? Slander is attacking with words to belittle and to destroy reputation. Do we do that in the church? Do we do that in the church? Well, that, that's a trick question, right? We do and we should not because that's what the world does. They attack and they destroy reputation. And we don't slander one another, but we experience slander. We experience people hitting social media and venting about all kinds of things and attacking individuals. Slander. And the church doesn't do that. We don't do that. We go to people one-on-one with grace and love and concern. We talk to people in a personal way, right? We don't get on the phone and freak out on people and attack their character. But what does he say? The church in Smyrna, you know what they experience? They experience being a faithful yet persecuted church in the middle of a metro that loved to attack the reputation, to destroy the church. They were surrounded with enemies. And he says, I see it. I know it. I know it, God says. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews. They say, we're God's people. We're God's people. And what does Jesus say? And they are not. They're not the real deal. They're not faithful to the scriptures. They are Jewish in religion. You believe that religious people love to attack Bible-believing churches? You believe that the... The Institute of Religious Organizations love to go on the offense against those of us who are faithful to the gospel. You know, it's not just crazy political agenda individuals that love to picket and riot and attack the church. It's those that say they're on the same team. And what does Jesus say? You're not real Jews. You're not my people. What's the image that, that Jesus gives? They are a synagogue of Satan. Somebody say, ouch. What is that all about? God's people of old, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, gather in synagogues, right? They gather in in the door in their worship centers, synagogues. And that synagogue is supposed to be a place where scriptures are opened and there are people that believe in Messiah alone for their righteousness. And over time, because the Jews hardened their hearts. God opened the way for all nations, all Gentiles, non-Jews, to be able to hear the word of God, to hear the gospel, and to be radically saved. And do you know what God doesn't say? God says, not so much. Well, at least they're, at least they're trying. At least, at least they're trying to be religious. At least they're, they're trying to adhere to the Old Testament. At, at least they're trying to make efforts to be moral and be right. Does he say that? He calls out his people that are unfaithful, the ones that are attacking God's new faithful covenant people. And he says, you are a synagogue of Satan. The next time you think, hey, preacher, dude, I think you're a little, you're a little harsh. You're, you're coming down a little strong on people that don't necessarily agree with us. And I would say it's not a matter of whether they agree with our church or, or any type of denomination that believes in the Bible. It's those that are religious and those that are attacking the true gospel, God would say they're enemies. Even though you could walk into the church today in many buildings 
if it's a religious gathering that the gospel is absent and they are not gathering in Jesus' name, they're gathering in the name of their religion and their doctrines, he would say it's satanic. You don't have to look for the uh, the the witchcraft gatherings, the covens that, that gather. You don't have to look around for those that are doing black magic in their living room. You don't have to look any further than different sects and organized religions, world religions, that say that they are following the one true God when in reality they're imposters. He says it's demonic. It's satanic what they're doing. They are deceiving the world. They're lying, and they're attacking the true church. God's words, not mine. So let's let's write this down. If God knows the pressure you are under, and do you believe he knows it? Yes, he does. God knows the pressure you're under. He knows what you're facing. He knows whether it's coming online, in your phone, texts, calls, face-to-face, at work, in your extended family. He knows the pressure you're under. He knows what you face. And here are three pressure points, okay? God knows my pressure points because we suffer for different reasons. Number one, we would say straight from the text, pressure of persecution, pressure of persecution. There's tribulation. Where's it coming from? It's coming from those that don't agree with the Bible, don't agree with Christianity, and they would attack because we say we're followers of Jesus. Tribulation, right? Persecution's coming our way. And and here's a hard question for us to, to answer. Because in the American church, I don't know if we experience a lot of this, but when is the last time that you were seriously persecuted for your faith? I mean, family function, annual family reunion, workplace, online, maybe old friends that find out that you're now doing the church thing and they got some thoughts and opinions. When's the last time that you were actually attacked because you stood your ground for Jesus, and they hate Jesus. They don't want to hear about God, and you're all about God. Has it been a week? Has it been a month? Has it this year? Have you had any situations where real persecution has come? And could we clarify, you being really obnoxious and picking fights with people about secondary issues and them getting upset is not persecution. Those were Opportunities for you to shut your face and be humble, and instead you open your mouth and you pick the fight about something that wasn't related to the gospel. Okay, it was related to maybe your political view and your Bible swing on it. Maybe it was your passion about how things should operate in our school system to workplace, and it had nothing to do with you saying I'm with Jesus. It's just that you want to pick a fight. So if you suffer because of that, that's your fault. If you take a stand and say, I'm not going to compromise my value system because I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not going to do that because I'm a Christian. And then it comes legit. I have a good friend, George, that lives in northern India. And he gives reports regularly. We went to seminary together and he would share stories that as he was in the comforts of our, our seminary dorms, and we were making some awesome Indian food sitting on concrete floors with our, our hot plate and whipping it up, eating things that should be illegal because they're so hot, and it takes two days, three days to get it out of your system. The colon cleanse begins, and he would share story after story of, John, when I go back, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay in contact with you because 
I'm profiled and, and they're watching and they're looking for me. I, I don't know if I'm going to survive because already relatives are being dragged out into the streets and they're being beaten publicly. And our children, our girls are being yanked out of church during service and they're raped in the middle of the street for everybody to come out and watch and cheer. He said, it's a little different in America. But one thing we would talk about often is, we'd say, John, worry, your turn is coming. Because it, it's coming to America soon. And we'd say, but I'm worried because the church is not prepared. They're not ready. They're not ready for what inevitably is going to come. And I wonder what kind of persecution, what kind of opposition you are facing. Are you feeling the pressure? Are you feeling the pressure? What other pressure? Pressure of poverty. Pressure of poverty. He says, I know it. I know your poverty. I see it. I see your need. When's the last time you complained about money? When's the last time you compared what you don't have to what others do have? When's the last time you lied about your happiness and saying, if I just made more, I would be happy if I just had what they had? And you keep lying to yourself. When's the last time you assumed somebody else would take care of your financial problems? Somebody else would do the hard work. When's the last time you were tempted to sin, to get money, to take shortcuts, to lie, to cover up? God already sees your poverty. He sees your need. He sees what you lack. And do you believe that your God is a generous God that is eager to supply? But if your fists are tight, if your fists are closed and you are shaking your fists at God, accusing everybody else and accusing him of what you don't have, your hands are not open to receive what he wants to give. How do you capture a monkey in the wild? In Brazil, we have tribes that are a little more strategic than others because they don't have ammunition. They don't have guns. Some of them, they have very primitive bows and arrows. But guess what? Monkeys are fast, but they're yummy. Okay? Rotisserie monkey over the fire. But how in the world do you chase the monkeys when they're 50, 60 feet up in the tree? Pretty difficult. You know what you do? You set a trap. What kind of trap? I'm glad you asked. Coconut, bore out a hole a little bit bigger than maybe a, a pit or a seed that you smother in something pretty delicious. You jam it in that coconut. You make sure the coconut is secure to the tree. And then you wait. What are you waiting for? You wait for the monkey to go hunting. And when the monkey gets his hand inside there and grabs hold of that seed, of that little fruit, whatever the bait is, guess what he does? He does not let go. And so what do you do at that point? Do you kill him? No, you just wait. Because they die right there, grasping as hard as they can, trying to rip it out, making themselves bloody, trying to get what they demand is theirs, and they're willing to die over it. So all you have to do is scoop up a dead body and start cooking. And I wish... We are a little bit more evolved in our thinking about desires and wants and our attitude towards poverty and the things that we think we need and what we're willing to get it. But unfortunately, we're not that different. What does the monkey have to do? Just let go. Let go and run and be free. Let go and live. And I wonder if today I'm done grabbing hold of. I'm done demanding and expecting and longing for in my dream list and coveting and jealousy and envy and just allow God to 
put in the hand a good gift, that you're not striving after that, you're not sweating it up, trying to make it happen. He sees it, he already knows it. And what do we have as the third pressure? We got three pressure points, not just persecution, not just poverty, but anybody know? It's got to start with a P, right? No, evil. Sorry, the alliteration stops here. Pressure of evil. Somebody say Satan. Satan, Satan, the pressure of evil in the synagogues we see he says that is a satanic place, religious people. And he says they're against you. They're not for you. We can't get together. We can't all be friends. We're not circling up and singing kumbaya for the sake of an appearance of unity. There is a division between good and evil. There's a division between light and darkness. And he's saying these are the ones that are against you and attacking you because you are standing with Jesus alone. And I wonder... What other allurement of Satan are coming, knocking at your door, trying to lure you in? What kind of evil is coming against you? And I don't know what's been said to you recently. I'm sure we could we could pass the mic, right? We could pass the mic around and go, uh, so tell me a story about something that was slightly unkind that was spoken to you this week. And we, we could share lots of stories of, can you believe they said that? Can you believe it? Can you believe they had the nerve? And here's what God wants to know. What was your response to that? Was it, was it evil for evil? Was it, I'm, I'm not going to take that from them. I need to get even. I need to get back. I need to have the last word. And he says that you're going to be persecuted and attacked. It's going to come from all over. And do you just give in or do you stand firm? And only you can testify to that, how you respond, even if it's inside your own head, even if it's you ranting and raving as you go home and unload on everybody else about what was done to you and what was done against you. And number three, if you're taking notes, jot this down. God allows you to be tested. God allows you to be tested. Do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that he ordains testing, that He's not passive, but he's actively permitting you to be tested again and again. Do you see it? In verse 10, do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Don't fear. But instead, he says, behold, somebody say, check it out. Come on. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Wow. But God, why would you allow Satan to throw us in prison. We're doing a good work. Why would we be persecuted? We have freedom. We have freedom. We have rights around here. He says, you know what's more important than your rights? You being tested and purified. You being sanctified and transformed. Instead of you fighting for your rights, what if God has a right to take you through ever what he chooses to shape you into somebody you are not today, but you will be? And who's behind it? So Satan's behind it. Is Satan throwing people into prison? Uh, there's people throwing Christians into prison. Who's behind that? God gives us a, a sneak peek. In fact, in the day, what was happening in the original context of this? The Jews were the ones going to the Roman Empire. The Bible-thumping, Old Testament, covenant people of God were throwing God's people into prison, and they felt justified. Just like Islam today feels very justified to kill Christians in the name of Allah, 
They think they're doing it for God, and Satan is actually behind it. Satan's doing this. So is Satan going to get the upper hand? Does Satan win? No, it's for your good. It's for you to be tested. And what does he say? For 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful. Be faithful. Turn to your neighbor and say, be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death. How far do I have to be faithful? How much do I have to be faithful? Until death. Until death. All the way to the very end. Could I say this? Sometimes it's, it's easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for him. We talk about, I, I, I'd i be willing to take a bullet for my kids. I'd be willing to die for my kids. I'd jump out in front and I would take it all for my kids. But do you live for them? It's really hard to love them patiently and gently and kindly every day. It's actually easier to just jump out in front and take it. It's easier to say, I will die for Jesus than it is every single day to say, I'm willing unto death to live for him. How are you doing in that area of whatever comes? I'm, I'm going to be with him because he's testing me. He's calling me to be faithful. What does it say? And I will give you the crown of life. That is awesome. I will give you the crown of life. Are we talking about like a king's crown here? Is that, is that what John's talking about? As John is writing this, he's seeing clearly that this crown is not, you're going to be a king someday. It's the idea of the wreath that was given to the Olympic winners at the games. You remember back in the day, you got the little wreath around around the ears. What do we do today instead of that? We should still go back to the, the, the green leaves around the head. I mean, as cool as that is. But instead, what do we have? We have the winner's box, and we have three positions, and there's one person in the middle at the top. And instead of a, a, a way-to-go crown wreath, what do they get? You have earned the gold medal. You have run the race. You have won. You have fought, and you are the winner. You are the conqueror. You're the victor. You've done it all the way. And what does he say? He says, if you don't give up and you're faithful, no matter what, when you're tested, you are going to receive the medal. You are going to receive a well-done, good, and faithful servant. But what did he start this section with? You remember those first words? What does verse 10 say? Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Why do we need to be told, do not fear? Why do we need that? 365 times in scripture we see, do not be anxious, do not worry, do not fear. Why do we need a reminder every stinking day not to fear? Because we are an incredibly fearful people. We're scared of everything. And as as much as the muchismo and the macho kind of exterior, guess what? We are a culture that is shaking in our boots. We're scared to death. The reason that we are so loud and we want to fight so hard is because We are little boys inside crying. We are little girls shaking, scared to death of what's going to happen. Fear causes us to do some really stupid stuff. And he says, you can't be faithful and be fearful at the same time. You can't live a lifestyle of being anxious and being faithful to God. You have to choose. Can Can we clarify one more thing? Does God ever say, don't ever feel fear. Is that what he says? Don't ever allow the feelings of anxiety to rise up inside of you. Does he say that? No. But do you know that you have a choice of what you're going to do when those emotions arise, when you are triggered, when you are overwhelmed? Do you believe that you have a choice, that you have freedom to choose what you're going to do in that moment? 
So ladies, those of us who struggle with anxiety, would you ever counsel any man in this church? Lust is a natural emotion. And let no one tell you that you should repent of sin. Take a pill instead. Because lust is something that you just need to control a little bit and get under management. And let no one tell you that if you go raging with your hormones and your lust, that you're doing anything wrong. Because it's just who you are. We would never counsel any man to say, just live by your lust. Hopefully every spouse, every soon-to-be married couple is looking at each other going, um, if you're going to be faithful, that means that lust has got to go and the love has to start. And God would say, if you're going to be faithful to me, anxiety and fear has to go and faithfulness needs to start. And it's not that you're going to be tempted. It's not that that's not going to be an issue of emotions raging, but how are you going to respond to that? What are you going to do with it? Every lady in the house would say, I hope every man is putting to death the lust. And may God say today, I pray that every man and woman is putting to death the anxiety that we pamper and we parent and we nurture instead of put it to death. Fear not. When God says don't do something and we do it, what's that called? It's called sin. When he says don't, 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 and we do, 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 it's sin. We can't control the emotions. We can't control the first look, but we can control the second. We can't control desires of attraction, but we can't control falling into bed with him or her. He's saying, be faithful, be faithful. Faithfulness looks like putting away fear, putting away anxiety and worry. Even if you feel it all day, every day, your faithfulness is pushing through because fear turns me into a false prophet. Fear turns me into a false prophet because it compels me to look at the future and say, I know exactly how this is going to play out. This worst case scenario in my mind, this is exactly what's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. I got to prevent it. I got to make a plan. I got to have a strategy. And guess what? Every single person in this room this morning, you're a false prophet. You have never accurately predicted the future about the things that you have stayed up all night anxious about. And if we're honest, the majority of the things that you're anxious about don't ever come to pass. That's not the way the story goes. But how much time do we waste? How many false prophecies do we make? Fear is an opportunity instead. And I, I hope you embrace this. Fear is an opportunity to run to God or to run from God. What kind of patterns are in your life in regards to where you're running? Are you running to or are you running away? And I would imagine this morning alone, there's a handful of us that are like, if I'm honest, I've been running and running and running and running and feeling pretty good about it and working really hard to make excuses. You could say, as of today, I'm going to stop running. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to come home. I'm going to run to my father who is after me with open arms. And today, today could be the day. And let me fire through some awesome scriptures that we need to be remembered all week long. James 1 says this. For you know that the testing, what's up with this testing? This testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Anybody want that? And I, I want to be complete. I want to be made whole. You're going to be tested. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Be faithful. Turn to your neighbor and say, be faithful. 
steadfast. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to bounce out like a watermelon seed under the thumb. I'm going to be steadfast again and again under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. There it is again, which God has promised to those who love him. Isaiah 48, 10. Behold, somebody say, check it out. Here we go. I have refined you, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. That's what God does. Are you feeling it? Do you know that God has his eye on you? He says, I know, I know, I see it. I see what you're going through. And he's got the hand on the dial and he's cranking it up hotter and hotter until the perfect time, until the work is complete. And the heat is going to keep cranking until his work is accomplished in you. Do you believe that there's a work that he's doing in the testing? Do you believe that it's not going to cool down until his work is done? So instead of complaining about the heat, what if every day this week you did alone what we did together and get flat on your face and say, God, I'm so tired of you cranking up the heat and me just fighting you, find me submitting to you that you can finally release me from this test. I want the work to be complete. I'm the one that's dragging this process on. I'm the one shaking my fist and making excuses. I need your help. Humble me. Second Corinthians 12, 9, some of us are meditating on this, he said to me, this is such good news, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, somebody say therefore, if grace is sufficient, if power is made perfect in weakness, what do you do? I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You want that? You want that to be said of you? Man, there's something different about her. There's something going on with him. It's like God's power is resting on them because I know who they used to be and I know how they used to respond to these things. The hand of God is resting on them. I know that they're not strong, but I'm seeing strength rise up and it's not from them. It's supernatural strength. Are you experiencing that? Because that's the normal Christian life. The more that we confess, I'm weak. I can't do it. I can't do it. The more grace pours out, the more that strength rise up, That is not of me. It's not of you. And guess who we get to boast about? I will make my boast in this. God, you're my strength. God, you're my provider. God, it's all you. I can't do it, but you can through me. Be faithful. Somebody say, be faithful no matter what. Be faithful no matter what. Number four, somebody say, land the plane. Here we go. As the worship team comes up, we'll finish with this. God guarantees it will be worth it all. Do you believe it? all of the sacrifice, it'll be worth it all. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, somebody say conquers. Oh, the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, the one who perseveres will not be hurt by the second death. If you have ears to hear what God is saying, saying your life will be marked by conquering. You will overcome. And I don't know if you walked in this morning feeling like I'm a victim. I'm not a victor. Everything is against me. Nothing but trouble has come my way, and it's not getting better. My life is not marked by conquering. I feel like I'm getting conquered. I feel like I'm getting destroyed out here. And I wonder if we just need to be reminded every single day, part of the experience of the conquering comes on the other side of the faithfulness. I just keep showing up. I keep pushing through. I continue to say yes to God. I submit myself under his mighty hand. He's the king. He's the boss. I follow. I submit. 
You know what happens on the other side of a lifestyle like that? Conquering, overcoming. You know what destroys me? Is that the second death, this is really serious. The one who's faithful and the one that continues on overcomes the second death. What's the second death? We all die, right? So none of us are unique. We all die. But not all of us died twice. Some of us died in sin, and we will never die. Others are going to die physically, and then the second death spiritually. Maybe you walked in this morning, and you have absolutely no certainty that you're going to conquer and overcome the second death. We're talking about hell. A literal, not figurative, a literal, eternal place of torment that was created for Satan and his minions, not for people at first. And we have descriptions in Revelation that describe some of this. Revelation 20, you can turn there if you want to, should be up on the screen. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Then another book was open. This book is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And we could say what they had done with Jesus. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. I mean, just imagine the grave and the sea and everything is puking out dead people. There's going to be a judgment and the dead are going to rise up and they're going to face King Jesus. What's going to happen? They were judged, each one of them. Death and Hades gave up the dead. What's going to happen to death and Hades? Thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the second death. The lake of fire. When all of those that are dead, apart from Jesus, all of those that did not bow the knee before it was too late are thrown into a lake of fire. If anybody's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a reality that we have to face. And apart from Jesus, we're all choosing hell because we will not bow to the king. Why do you want to go to heaven if you're not willing to obey Jesus now? Why would you want to obey Jesus for all eternity if you don't do it now? If you refuse to sing praises to God right now, why would you want to go to heaven and praise him for the rest of eternity? Here's what we know for certain. The church in Smyrna says there's a cost for following King Jesus. Do you believe it? cost. But here's what is also just as true. There is a greater cost for not following the king, for refusing to submit to him. There's a greater cost.